Good morning, everyone. Good to see you come out this morning as we gather together to worship our Lord and Savior. This morning we will be continuing to look at what it means to be a privileged people. A privileged people of God. And in our last sermon on, uh, in First Peter, we looked at that in chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, and we will continue today in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. The text for our sermon this morning as mentioned, chapter 2, verse 9 to 10 of First Peter. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Last time we saw that like Christ, we too are living stones. And we are being built up into the spiritual house in which the Holy Spirit dwells. We are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices and worship as we represent God here on earth as His ambassadors. This morning, I'll keep the introduction short because we have a lot of content to go through. But this morning, we want to look at the position and purpose of being a privileged people of God. The position and purpose of being a privileged people. Our first point, the, uh, the position... And then I have seven sub-points underneath that as we dig through verses 9 and 10, and I will list those as we go if you're following along that way. And the second point, the purpose. Why has God made us this way and put us into this position? So the first sub-point, we are a chosen race. Peter begins with the phrase, but you are a chosen race. You'll note Peter's use of the conjunction, but. And we're reminded of the often overlooked significance of these small words, but, so, as, yet. These words um, that direct the flow of a discourse, they present slight contrast, things like that. And in our case, again, we see Peter using the word, but. These words are used to establish parallel thoughts, they're used to make lists or form basic contrasts. And that's what Peter does here in verse 10. Sorry, in verse 9. But you are a chosen race. So this directs our attention then to what preceded. What preceded Peter's use of this conjunction? And we see in verse 7 and 8 leading up to that. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But 
You are a chosen race. So this is Peter's contrast that he is making. He is underscoring the contrasting eternal destinies of the unbeliever mentioned in verse 8, as well as the believer that he is transitioning to again in verse 9. The unbeliever, because of their rejection of Christ, are destined for eternal destruction, but the believer... We are a chosen race, he says, a spiritual people elect by God himself. When we look at this word chosen, we have the same root word translated as we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says, to those who are elect exiles. The word elect and chosen, it is the same root word translated from the original. We also see, this word used in chapter 2, verse 6, where Peter addresses Jesus Christ. And in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. So Peter employs the same word here when he speaks of the elect exiles, a chosen race, the people of God, as well as when he's referencing Jesus Christ himself. The word elect or chosen means to be chosen out, selected, a recipient of special privilege, and in our current context, chosen as inheritors of God's mercy in salvation. As with much of the previous portion of Scripture leading up to verse 9 and 10, Peter employs the use of Old Testament terminology to illustrate his point. And so we see in the text that we read this morning in verse 9 and 10 so far that there are a lot of Old Testament references that Peter is alluding to, that he is pointing his readership to. So we'll be jumping back and forth a little bit. And for our first reference, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, reading verse 6 and 9 or 6 through 9, sorry. Verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The idea of being elect, or chosen, is not foreign to the student of God's word. It is the same term used multiple times for Israel as seen in this passage that we just read in Deuteronomy. God was not sitting in heaven hoping that some nation, somewhere, at some time, would choose him. No, he is saying that out of all the people of the earth, he chose them. He clarifies this in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy in chapter 2, or verse 2, where he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, 
And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose them. He selected the nation of Israel not because of number, not because of deed, but because of his love that he had set on them. He chose them to be his possession, his people. This teaching fills the Old Testament, and God chose a people for himself, even though they rebelled and turned from his ways time and time again. God remained faithful on the basis of his choice and his promises to them. But the question is then asked, is this true of the church also? Or does God's election only refer to Israel? First, we must acknowledge that it is a deep subject, a subject that can take much time and study to look at, but there are a few things that we have to consider. We cannot change the meaning of the words elect or chosen, and in striving to be consistent in its application, we can look at a few New Testament passages addressing believers and the church. And we see in this uh, references that I'll read, the Apostle Paul's use of these terms as well. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, and I'll just read through these here, Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We are chosen to be his beloved, to be holy, and he has set his love on us. Paul goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says he is striving in his ministry to bring the gospel to the elect and makes this point all the more clear again in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth. Paul's mission statement is to bring the gospel to God's elect, those whom God has set his affections on. To quote the Bible teacher and scholar A.W. Pink, he says, Let it be plainly announced that salvation originated not in the will of man, but in the will of God. That were it not so, none would or could be saved. For as the result of the fall, man has lost all desire and will unto that which is good. And that even the elect themselves have to be made willing. And we see this in our Lord's own words in John chapter 6 verse 44, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we understand the state that we are in, dead in our trespasses and sin, and we will look at that a little bit further on. But we see that God has placed his love on us. It is not us that love him first. We love because he first loved us. And Peter is referring to the church here as a chosen people. Because as exiles, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, they have been cast out and rejected by their former people. But God has taken them in. So as a people, the church, the believers of the time have been thrown out, especially of the Jewish people. They've been put out of their religion. But God has chosen them. He has taken them in to be made His people. Peter is drawing on the prophet Isaiah's words 
When Isaiah wrote in chapter 43, verse 20 to 21, and I'll just read it here, the beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And in the same manner that God chose Israel, he also again chose Jesus as we saw in chapter 2, in verse 4, as well as verse 6. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is how he has chosen us, the church. All of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, all are one community of faith. All of God's people, everyone who believes in Christ, repents and believes the gospel and calls upon the name of the Lord, are part of God's chosen people. And as we've seen already in just the Old Testament passages that we've referenced, so many of these words, phrases, titles, Peter is repeating them in this passage. So he's applying the text, the terms that the Old Testament writers were applying to Israel. He's applying them now to the church, to the people that are there reading his letters. And the next one we see in verse 9, we read, but you are a chosen race. And now we're at our second sub-point. We are a royal priesthood. So the next title of position that the Apostle Peter applies is a royal priesthood. This term could also be translated as kingly or kingdom priests and refers to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. And look at verse 5 through 6. It writes, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is what God, through Moses, told the people of Israel. You shall be a kingdom of priests. But as John MacArthur stated in his commentary on this passage, the sad fact is, however that Israel forfeited her privilege of priestly dominion because of her apostasy and rejection of Jesus Christ. And so, having been promised this, we see how Israel forfeited this. And the New Testament writers touch on this as well. We'll be looking at a few references starting in the uh, Gospel of John. And we'll see how Israel has forfeited these privileges in their rejection of the Messiah. In John chapter 12, 
Starting in verse 37, John chapter 12, verse 37. John writes, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And who anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So we see Christ's words there to those who reject his words. And we move further into Romans chapter 10. And in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul also addresses this, starting in verse 16. In Romans 10, verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of the Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's jump further into chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened, so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. But all those who believe in Jesus as Messiah, unlike those who rejected him as the nation of Israel did, All those who believe as Jesus as Messiah and trust in him alone for salvation receive the privilege of becoming royal priests. So this privilege 
that was given to the nation of Israel, Peter is again alluding to that in this text and he's applying these terms to us as believers. And we see John address this in Revelation chapter 5. In the book of Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 9, the Apostle John writes, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It is also noted that two primary elements constitute the image of royal priesthood. First, the priests serve the king by having access to his holy presence, into which they come offering spiritual sacrifices. The second, the priests rule with the king in his kingdom. We saw in the last sermon regarding the holy spiritual sacrifices that we as priests are when we addressed verse 5 of First Peter chapter 2. And in verse 5, we were a, it says, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And here now in verse 9, we are called a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And the word translated as royal generally describes a royal residence or palace, but it can also refer to a sovereignty or monarchy. In verse 5, we saw that we were being built up into a spiritual house. We are being built up like living stones. We are being built up as a spiritual house. And we are, believers are to be a holy priesthood. And this spiritual house turns out to be a royal house. As we see in verse 9, we are a royal priesthood. One commentary states, the dominion of a royal family, family that is what this royal house is. Believers are a ruling priesthood. Literally, a royal house of priests. A royal house of priests. That is what we as believers are. I want to turn to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and starting in verse 28. Luke writes, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And this is Jesus speaking here. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is assigning a kingdom to his disciples. The Apostle John also wrote in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We saw in our scripture reading this morning in 1 John chapter 5, we are those who overcome. And Jesus is granting us to sit with him on his throne. The only one who can establish such a royal house is Jesus Christ. There is no one else because Jesus himself alone is both king and priest. In fact, Christ had a very unique priesthood. He was not after the line of Levi, which in the Old Testament was the priestly line. It was in the the, the Levites that were the, the priests attending to the temple and the synagogues. Jesus was not after that line, but rather he was after the order of Melchizedek, who foreshadowing Christ was the Old Testament model for the royal priest. Melchizedek is a name we see several times in the Old Testament and then as well in the book of Hebrews. We want to take a quick look at that a little bit to establish a little bit of Christ's priesthood. Because again, he did not come after the line of, of Levi, so therefore he did not follow in that in those steps in his priestly title. So in Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we see that instance where Abram encountered Melchizedek for the first time there. And Melchizedek blessed him as a priest. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, of the spoils. Let's jump into the book of Hebrews now for a minute. Hebrews chapter 7. And in Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to be priest forever. And in the same chapter, starting in verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Note that he was not a descendant of Levi, but a descendant from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you 
are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. R.C. Sproul noted on this passage, Melchizedek pronounced his blessing on Abraham, and in turn, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. The point is, according to the Hebrews, the superior blesses the subordinate. And the subordinate gives tithes to the superior. So Melchizedek blessed Abram, and in turn, Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek was the superior, and Abraham, in so doing, subordinated himself to Melchizedek. And we also know that Abraham is greater than Isaac, and Isaac is greater than Jacob, and Jacob is greater than Levi, then we must conclude that Melchizedek was a greater high priest than Levi. And Christ, like Melchizedek, did not inherit the priesthood through the priestly Levitical line. Rather, God appointed him as the sinless royal priest who transcended the Levitical system fulfilled the old covenant law and offered himself as the new covenant sacrifice for sin. Because salvation unites believers with Christ, we too become royal priests. Royal priests who belong to the king and therefore share in Jesus' sovereign rule And again, as one commentator put it, Peter gives us the astonishing affirmation that in Christ we are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. By virtue of being in Christ, we participate in his kingdom. We participate in his priesthood. And as those who make intercession for the lost as well as for the people of God. We are a nation that is holy, sacred, consecrated, and transcendent. We are a nation that is different from any nation that has ever appeared on the planet. This leads us fitly into our next point, our next sub-point out of verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and next item of position that we will address, we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. Peter here again alludes to the Old Testament as we have already read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. When he gives Christians the privileged title of being a holy nation, he declares that Christians are separated to Christ as a holy nation. The word nation is translated from the word that might be familiar to some, it's ethnos, which refers to those who share a common culture or people as an ethnic group. Holy means separate or set apart. God is holy. He is separate from all his creation. He is set apart from everything else in creation. And for Peter, holiness is a direct consequence of being 
a child of God. And also a standard of ethical and moral conduct grounded in the holiness of God himself. To be holy or set apart means to be sanctified. And our sanctification is inseparable from our justification. Our sanctification is inseparable from our justification. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus chapter 2 verse 11. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God that saved us purifies us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness. Again, our sanctification is tied directly to our justification. Our growth and maturation in the faith is a direct result of uh, receiving the grace of God. The nation of Israel also was set apart from the world in manner of food, clothing, circumcision, feasts, sacrifices, their form of worship, and many other areas of life. They were set apart. They were a separate nation. We too are set apart. We too are separate from the world, or better yet, as the Apostle Peter phrases it, we are a holy nation. The church is to display God's rule to the surrounding nations. The church is separate. It is distinct. And we are to display God's rule to the surrounding nations. We hear the phrase, we are of the world, or sorry, we are in the world, but not of the world. This is what I believe Scripture is referring to. We are a nation set apart unto God, yet we walk in this world. We work, we live in this world. But we must remember we are not of this world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making an appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As a holy nation, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are his representation in this foreign land. We represent our heavenly kingdom. We represent God as our supreme ruler to this world around us. That is our duty as a holy nation. 
This nation exists to be Christ's ambassadors, proclaiming the message of reconciliation to a lost world around us. Though we are now living, as Peter put it, as exiles in this foreign land, we do not belong. And we see all the more clearly with all that is happening around us today. We look at the political state. We look at what the world is calling good. And we see very clearly that the world does not share our ideals. The world does not share our morals, our commitment to a king who is the supreme, sovereign ruler over all of his creation. The world does not share these things and it does not understand how the church can view God in this way or his word in this way. And we belong to this king. God is the ruler over all the nations and we belong to him. We are his children. And that moves us into our next sub point. As a privileged people, we are God's possession. We are God's possession. As Peter put it, a people for God's own possession. The prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And in the phrase that Peter uses, a people for his own possession, people refers to a group who have a common purpose. We read earlier that God promised the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. In Exodus we read, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. I want to turn briefly to the book of Malachi. The last book in the Old Testament. And in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, starting in verse 16, Malachi chapter 3, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spare for that is used in the New Testament. Darkness is a place where no light intrudes, where deeds of evil are conceived and carried out. The Bible tells us that we are by nature the children of darkness. Darkness is our natural habitat. In our fallen condition, we feared more than anything else that a searchlight would be placed on our souls and that our sins would be made manifest to the world. In looking at this section to be transferred from darkness to light, 
I want to begin by looking at his own possession. And the clear distinction between those that God has purchased and those left in their sins, that is what the term possession means. This is how it is distinguished between those whom God has purchased. They are his possession and those who are left in their sins. To be in God's possession means to be purchased and to acquire for a price. And you, if you are a child of God this morning, you are God's possession because you have already been purchased with the blood of Christ Jesus. God possesses you because He redeemed you. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter verse 18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As the Apostle Paul reminded Titus that the price was Jesus Christ himself. We read that earlier. Jesus Christ himself redeemed a people. He was the price that was paid. It was his blood that was shed to purchase a people for God's own possession. We are very dearly bought. And in the crucifixion of Christ, God redeemed all those who would believe in him. In the crucifixion of Christ, the price was paid for all those to be purchased that would believe in Jesus Christ. In Romans, Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this leads us again to our next point. You'll notice here that we're going to skip a small portion in verse 9. We'll come back to that later. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. We'll skip that until our later point. And now, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the position of us as a privileged people of God, we are transferred from darkness to light. The contrast between light and darkness is a common metaphor that is used in the New Testament. 
Darkness is a place where no light intrudes, where deeds of evil are conceived and carried out. The Bible tells us that we are by nature the children of darkness. Darkness is our natural habitat. In our fallen condition, we feared more than anything else that a searchlight would be placed on our souls and that our sins would be made manifest to the world. In looking at this section, to be transferred from darkness to light, I want to begin by looking at um, a section, sorry, to one of the most popular and memorized portions of Scripture, John 3.16. We will start in John 3.16, a verse that we probably all or most of us know off by heart. But we want to read the greater context. We want to read the whole portion from verse 16 to 21. We want to get an illustration here of light and darkness. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In the unregenerate state, all people love darkness, because light exposes our sin. Light exposes the evil intentions of our hearts and the sin that resides in us. You may have heard the analogy used of like a moth drawn to the flame. We are the light. Christians are the light. Like a moth drawn to the flame, unbelievers are drawn to us because of that. Because like the moth is drawn to the light for comfort and warmth. But according to the Apostle John, we see something very different. According to the Apostle John, unbelievers hate the light because their evil works are exposed. Picture it this way. Take a room, even this size, eliminate all windows, eliminate all sources of light, and you sit in pitch black. You do not see any flickering, nothing. How much light would it take to be noticed in a big room like this? It would be but a spark, but a flicker of light would be noticed from one end of the room to the next. That is what light does. It exposes, it overrides, overrules darkness. It only takes such a very small light to penetrate the depths of the darkness of any room. And this is what the light of the gospel does. This is why unbelievers hated this message. This is why they killed Jesus Christ on the cross. The gospel exposes the evil intentions of our hearts and the wicked works that are born from those intentions. 
This is the light that Jesus Christ is referring to. As John also wrote, it wasn't to condemn, but it was to show the world that they are condemned. They are already condemned. The light exposed their wickedness, their evil hearts, their intents. And the darkness that Peter is referring to in our text is the sinful state of unbelievers who are trapped in spiritual darkness. We are trapped in the vices of Satan, the prince of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1. Nope, I had my number wrong. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we are. This is why we do not love the light and why John stated people loved darkness rather than the light. Peter is reminding his readers that God in His power, in His sovereignty, has called us out of darkness and out, or sorry, into His marvelous light. God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And to illustrate what this looks like, I want us to turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We'll be looking at the story of Lazarus. In 11 verse 38, Jesus, Mary, and Martha have approached the tomb of Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus. He has been dead, decaying for four days. In verse 38 of John chapter 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. In the same manner that Jesus called Lazarus out of the death and decay of the tomb, so God has called us 
out of darkness of our sinful and unregenerate state. It was the effectual call of Christ that raised Lazarus from the dead and drew him out of the tomb. And it was the call of Christ that gave life to Lazarus' decaying corpse And the transferring from death to life that occurred here is the image that we get when we read Peter's word that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the same manner that it was the call of Christ that gave life to Lazarus' body that he was able to rise up and to come forth and obey his command to come forth. In the same manner it is the call of God that transfers us out of darkness and giving life to our mortal bodies, removing the veil from our eyes so that we might see the glorious truths of his gospel. It is God's work as he has transferred us from the state of death and darkness, following the prince of the power of the the earth and air, Satan himself. He transferred us by this call into his marvelous light opened our eyes to see the truth of his word, of his gospel, the work of Jesus Christ. God's call changes our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. The prophet Ezekiel wrote in chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will clean you, cleanse you, sorry, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Not only has God called us out of darkness, but he has called us into his marvelous light. When we receive the light of Christ, he illuminates our minds so we can discern truth. He changes our hearts so that we can obey truth. And he gives us wisdom so that we may be able to apply truth. This indeed is a glorious privilege that God has given us. And as we move to our next point in verse 10, we are now God's people. We are now God's people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Peter is drawing the analogy from the prophet Hosea. And again, we will jump to the Old Testament reference in Hosea. It is the first book after Daniel. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, Not my people, for you are not my people, 
and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. According to this passage, there was coming a time when the Jews would no longer receive God's compassion. But there will also be a future time when he will have compassion on the sons of Israel. And Judah, in saving uncounted numbers of them. So in principle, Peter applied to the church, particularly to its Gentile members, the prophet's word concerning the Jews. So remember, you were not a people, but now you are my people. The Gentiles were not God's people, and now they are counted as the same. Hosea also said in chapter 2, verse 23, And I will sow for her, sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, You are my people, and he shall say, You are my God. So those who are not his people now are his people. And this is what Peter is applying to the church. And the Apostle Paul also addresses this in chapter two, or sorry, chapter nine, verse 22 through 26. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who has, was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So we see Paul also applying this to the Gentiles. As unbelievers, the Gentiles knew no compassion from Christ. They were not God's people. They once were again not a people, but now they too are God's people because they had received his mercy. And likewise, all who are children of God receive his mercy as we are his people, possessed by him. This leads us to our next point, the last point in verse 10, and the last point of our, our first section of the position of being a privileged people. We are recipients of mercy. We are recipients of mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy is synonymous with compassion and pity. In this context, it refers to God's sympathy on sinners who are lost in their misery and sin and him withholding his just punishment on them, for which 
would have been, this would have been his just response to their sin, to our sin. This is what Peter is referring to with mercy. God is merciful and he has shown us mercy. So rather than giving the just punishment that we deserve, he has withheld that. Peter is here referring to God's divine saving mercy displayed towards his chosen people. Though the scriptures address believers again as elect or chosen, as we've seen several times in our, in our uh, book here, we are no more deserving of God's mercy than anyone else. Anyone who is, professes to be a child of Christ and believes that they deserve to be there or in some way deserve more so to be there even than anyone else is severely misled. Yet, we receive God's forgiveness and we are brought into the family of God as His very own children. He has adopted us as His own children. We are joint heirs with Christ who is the Son of God. And He delivers us from the condemnation of our sin all according to His purpose. Consider these contrasts that we've seen that the Apostle Peter has given us. We were once in darkness. Now we are in light. We were once not God's people. But now we are God's people. We were once awaiting divine judgment. And now we receive mercy. This is what God has done for us. He has called us out of darkness to be His people and to be the vessels of His mercy. What a privilege. What a privilege to be in this position as children of God that He has put us on, that He has accomplished for us on His behalf to bring glory to His name. And that leads us to our second main point The purpose. As children, a privileged people of God, the purpose of this position is, as Peter writes in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. We've looked at multiple privileges that, privileges that we as children of God have. We've seen the depth of the riches of God's grace in what He has done. What He has accomplished for us and through us. We are living stones built up into a spiritual house. We are a holy and a royal priesthood. We are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people belonging to and possessed by God. We have been transferred out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are recipients of God's divine mercy. And the reason for all this, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, 
is that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So just when the world is telling us that we come to Christ so that we can have a comfortable life, that we might have health and wealth and all these other things, the Apostle Peter tells us, no. God did not do these things for us because we deserve it, because we earn it. He did these so that we, as a church, as the body of Christ, might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We have received our citizenship into the kingdom for the purpose of proclaiming God's praises. The privileged position of God's people leads to the privileged purpose of His people. Because He has redeemed us, we proclaim His excellencies. The use of the word proclaim brings to mind a sense of missionary endeavor. It means to publish or to advertise and announce something that was previously not well known or completely unknown. Peter is encouraging believers to make known the excellencies of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Excellencies can imply the ability to perform powerful and heroic deeds. And contrary to what it might indicate in English, the term refers to those kinds of actions. So we might hear His Excellency speaking of a title of someone. In this case, it is referring to the deeds and actions The term refers to more than those kinds of actions, than to some intrinsic royal attribute or quality. Christians have the distinct privilege of telling the world that Christ has the power to accomplish extraordinary work in redemption. We too, with the angels in the book of Revelation, proclaim... Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, as well as great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. These are the truths that we proclaim to the world that is lost around us. The excellencies that we proclaim, the purpose for our position in Christ, the purpose that God has saved us and to put us in this position is to proclaim His glories through the proclamation of the gospel, through the worship of the church and how we gather. This is why we look to God's Word in our gatherings, not to the world around us, not to what the governments might say or ask or require us to do. The purpose of the church is to be a light to the world. That is also why the world will hate us. Because we do not serve the same gods they do. We do not serve the gods or the idols of our flesh. 
our own desires, our own comforts. Though it costs us everything, and for many throughout the history of the church, it has cost them their lives, we stand and we proclaim the excellencies of Him who transferred us out of darkness into this light. And we plead with those that are still in there that they might too see this light. And we bring them as intercessors and as ambassadors. We bring them before the throne of God and we plead with our King that He might remove that veil as He has done with us and that He might save sinners to the glory of His name. In conclusion, for God to change, to choose undeserving sinners as His representatives and to use them to gather other sinners to Himself is a privilege beyond all exception. It caused Paul to write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we come before you. We pray that you humble us, Lord, knowing that the privilege we have to be called your children comes only from You. We thank You that You have so graciously bestowed these, this position on us. And that You have done this mighty work in each one of our lives who are Your children. And God, I pray that the knowledge and understanding of what we have looked at today, God, that it will give us strength and courage in this world to proclaim Your excellencies, knowing that this is the purpose for which You have called us to proclaim your gospel, to share with the world that which you have done with us. And though they may hate us because the light of the believer, the light of the gospel, the light of the church reveals their sin, their wickedness, God, that we might be gracious with them in proclaiming the truth and that for all those who might believe in your name, Lord, that you have purchased them 
You have paid their sins and there is no longer any condemnation for those who trust in you. Make us ambassadors of this message to the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray.